What have we been reading lately on Sunday night? Romans. If you come regularly and you don't know that, you're not breathing right now. Uh, so yes, we have been going through the letter uh, that Paul wrote to the church at Rome where he writes Jews and Gentiles who were struggling to understand how to live out the gospel. So he just finished stressing the way that God has kept his promise to Israel through the gospel, even though it seems like God has broken his promise in chapters 9 through 11. He urges the Gentiles in this section in chapter 9 through 11, chapters 9 through 11, to remember and respect God's redemptive plan among the Jews because there was all kinds of discord and disunity between the Jews and Gentiles. Now in chapter 12 and all the way through the end of the letter, he'll maintain the same theme, and that is the gospel alone is what can unify the church. The gospel alone. And don't we see that when, when the love of Christ compels us and we unify as a church, the gates of hell can't prevail against us. So let's jump in. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. These two verses mark the whole point of our life in Christ. They summarize what we're all about, and they could not be more important. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this call that you give us to live for you because of your mercy. Lord, you say in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Lord, if it weren't for your mercy, there's no way we could. It's an impossible task to lay down our life. But we thank you, Lord. It's in laying down our life where we find real life in you. So help us, Lord. Would you focus our minds and our hearts now to make much of your word? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray expectantly as we walk through these verses together. Let's not sit there passively like a deer stuck in headlights, but let's really focus in on God's word tonight. Learn as much as we possibly can and be praying continually along with me for the power of the Holy Spirit to move in us that we might apply these words and be changed forever. You know, some of you, while I was praying, couldn't stop worshiping the Lord because you're thinking this is going to be the shortest message ever given in Awakens history because I only, I'm only going to be teaching on two verses, and you are so pumped up. But let me just say it probably won't be that short because I intended to go through the whole chapter, and I could not get past these two verses. Um, I just couldn't. I had you know, a legal pad of notes just on these two verses. I just could not move on. Um, so I'm very excited to give this message. These two verses describe what it means to be in Christ. I believe that from it we find our calling as Christ followers, our motivation, and the fruit that should come out of our lives. I also believe that these verses make us apathy-proof. And I want to ask you tonight, are you feeling stale in your walk with Jesus? Do you feel distant and distracted? Does the Bible seem boring? Does worship seem rote? Does fellowship seem like a burden? Is obedience lifeless to you right now? 
We've all been there. And these verses show us how to become apathy-proof, invincible to indifference, armored against godless disobedience and a cold heart towards people. We can jump into real life as we ask the Holy Spirit to use these verses. The first thing we need to understand in order to avoid apathy is the Christ follower's calling. And I'm going to be reading this passage a lot tonight since it is only two verses. And I would urge all of us to memorize these two verses because I do believe they're, they're paramount to our faith. These are some of the first verses I've memorized uh, as a Christ follower. Again, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to attest and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So in short, our calling is to offer our lives, all of who we are, to Christ as a living sacrifice. That is the calling of a Christian. But I want to dig in a little more than that, obviously. For starters, this therefore in verse 1 is critical. It's the most important therefore in the entire Bible. Because a therefore always marks a transition. We have to understand what went before it. Uh, And here, Paul's been focusing on what the gospel does in us in chapters 1 through 11. And then starting in chapter 12, he begins to talk about what the gospel does through us, what's to come out of our lives. And he starts, first thing, your life should be a living sacrifice, should lay down your body as a living sacrifice to Christ. So that's why it's there. And it's aimed at Paul's Gentile and Jewish audience, but like so much of the letters so far, there's a special emphasis on the Jews. And we know that because here he's using temple language. He's using these two words that the sacrifice is to be what? A living sacrifice. And the idea here is not that of a sin offering. Because a sin offering was something that a Jew would bring to God and that an animal would be killed as a substitution for the individual who is bringing the sacrifice to God. Because the penalty for sin, the Bible says, God says, is death. So God commanded the Jews to bring an animal sacrifice, and that animal would become a substitute, suffering the penalty that they deserve for their sin. But Jesus is the once-for-all-time sacrifice. We don't need to make continual sacrifices for sin, and he's freed us from all condemnation. So Paul doesn't have a sin offering in mind here. He has a whole burnt offering. And this is a very special act of worship for the Jew. It meant that they took one of their prized animals without defect or blemish. It would have been very expensive, and they were to offer it to God and burn it, which could seem wasteful, right? But they did this to show that everything they owned was at God's disposal. All of life, all of their life was in God's hands. So that's the picture that Paul's painting here. So Paul says, offer all of yourself, hold nothing back. And he even told them to offer their bodies, which would have been very confusing to this Greco-Roman audience, the Gentiles among them, because they were trained and taught as even young children on that your body was naturally evil and that uh, spirituality was really about strengthening your soul and your mind, that your body was just kind of out there and you could do whatever you wanted with it. So this would have been crazy for them that worship is to be practical. We do it with our hands. We do it with our mouth. We do it with our money. We do it with our resources. We do it with our lives. 
It's practical. Christian writer and theologian John Stott says it best in his book, The Message of Romans. He says this, Paul made it plain in his exposure of human depravity in Romans 3, 13 and following that it reveals itself through our bodies. So sin is revealed through our bodies. In tongues which practice deceit, in lips which spread poison, in mouths which are full of cursing and bitterness, in feet which are swift to shed blood, and in eyes which look away from God. Conversely, Christian sanctity shows itself in the deeds of the body. So we're to offer different parts of our body to God as instruments of righteousness. Then our feet will walk in his paths. Our lips will speak the truth and spread the gospel. Our tongues will bring healing. Our hands will lift up those who have fallen. Our arms will embrace the lonely and the unloved. Our ears will listen to the cries of the distressed. And our eyes will look humbly and patiently towards God. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So this worship God is looking for, it's not some kind of mystical act that only the super spiritual among us can engage in. The word living in chapter 12, verse 1, means to offer your life constantly to God. You are constantly laying yourself on the altar. Lord, you have all of me. You have all of me. We can't live this life on our own. So it's to be living. It's a continual sacrifice. And the word sacrifice means to kill. So living sacrifice here literally means a living killing. If you're just going to translate it word for word. So the sacrifice God is after from us, both at the time of this writing and for us today, is to be constantly renewing ourselves as ones who are submitted to God. We find this same admonition coming from Jesus' lips in Luke chapter 9 when he says, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily. You must lose your life in order to find it. So we know that this sacrifice God wants from us is to be constant. It is to be a lifestyle, not an occasional religious act. I want to make that very clear. It's not about just going to church, going to church on holidays and being nice. God wants all of us. He wants a passionate, all-consuming relationship with us. 12.1 also tells us that this sacrifice God wants from us is to be holy and pleasing to the Lord. The Lord's describing through Paul the quality of life we should pursue and that it's not trying to please others or even ourselves, but God. His agenda is our agenda, whether or not we agree with it or not. His passions are our passions. The evil he hates becomes the evil that we hate. So now we have a better grasp on what this impossible calling is, to offer all of ourselves to him. We've all done that, right? We do it every day. No, we can't can't do that. It's impossible. This is an impossible calling. How in the world do we find the motivation to walk this out? You know why? Because normally I teach this passage, and I've taught it many times, and I've heard it taught many times. You skip right over this first verse. I urge you, brothers and sisters, what? In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. I've gone straight to verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you start focusing on all the stuff we're to do as a Christian. But our motivation, the second thing that makes us apathy-proof, is the Christ follower's motivation. 
It is so, so very important. Because I'm going to give you my whole message tonight in just a nutshell. And I'm going to unpack it in lots of different ways so we get it. Because it's so easy to diminish the impact of reflecting on God's mercy and grace regularly. And here it is, in a nutshell, the message. It is very dangerous to think of sanctification, that is becoming more like Christ, through the lens of what we do for God. Well, sanctification is about my life basically taking on more Christian characteristics and behaviors. That's the result. That's the fruit. But the way we get there is not just to try harder. The way we get there is in view of God's mercy. The best thing we can do to become more like Christ is to reflect and meditate on his mercies and his grace. It's like Paul who said it was the love of Christ that compelled him. This verse, I think, primarily is used as a call to become some kind of Navy SEAL, you know, super hard Christian oftentimes. And we, straight, we jump straight to verse 2 without absorbing verse 1. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, our first point, lay down our lives for Christ, to give him everything. But, but how do we do this? How do we find the motivation to do this? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, it starts. So Paul's saying, okay, in light of everything I've said in chapter 1 through 11, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in, in view of God's mercy. So everything I've talked about, this whole letter, you know, in the first few chapters about the fact that we've fallen, and then all about God's grace and his mercy, that justification comes by faith through Christ alone, that it's all about his mercy. So Paul, in just one phrase, summarizes all of what he said in chapters 1 through 11. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, if we don't understand chapters 1 through 11, uh, chapter 1 through chapter 12, verse 1, then we can't move on to chapter 12, verse 2. If you haven't tasted, it, tasted of God's mercy, if the apathy in your life towards Christ, towards worship, if the indifference we have towards sin and the Bible and the needs of others, if that is a chronic issue in our lives, we don't understand the gospel. We never outgrow the need to preach the gospel to ourselves, and we must get creative. It's not just about saying, well, Lord, I know that I've been saved by grace. Thank you for that. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that I'm going to be with you forever. No, 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 no. The renewing of our mind makes us much more creative than that in reflecting on his mercy. Basically giving you the whole message. Man, what am I going to say now? Um, so the only fitting catalyst to live for Christ comes from gratitude for grace. One of the greatest prayers we can pray is make the cross as scandalous to me now, more scandalous to me now than it was the day I met you. Make your resurrection take my breath away more in that first Easter after I came to know you. Grip my heart with grace, Lord, please, to cry out for that. Otherwise, we become Pharisees. It becomes all about works and about comparing ourselves to other people, and at least I'm not as bad as the person I'm sitting next to. And that's not what salvation is about. 
That's why Romans 8 is so important to understanding our salvation. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8? Therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercy. Paul spoke the most about God's mercy in chapter 8. Do you remember the last part? He says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because you see, if we were afraid of losing our salvation, if we weren't secure in our relationship with Jesus, then our relationship to him would become toxic. It's important. If we're motivated by fear, something dangerous happens in our faith. Our motivation will lose its power over time if we're motivated by fear. It's draining. It works great for a while, but then we're too tired to care, and we just chuck it. That's why oftentimes you'll see older Christians kind of become stale. You just, you're motivated by fear, and you get sick of trying. Fear elicits repentance applied for fear of consequences, not of love. You know repentance is supposed to, it's the kindness of the Lord, Romans tells us, that leads to repentance. Repentance is supposed to bring us closer to the Lord. Have you ever seen a good parent discipline their kids? Have you? Those are, and a good parent knows this. That's some of the most tender moments with a child. It's supposed to draw them closer if it's done right. But when you're afraid of mom and dad, Repentance is you want to do it as, as uh, little as possible. You want to avoid any type of discipline. The Lord is to be appeased, not loved, when fear is up front. Along the same lines, suffering and difficulties are seen as punitive and avoidable if we would just work harder for God, if we're motivated by fear. So Paul says that when we see and experience life through the lens of God's mercy, we find true and proper worship. Do you read that? Is the passage still up there? Yeah. You read that? True and proper worship. So when we, when we view life through this lens, it's true and proper worship. Now, this phrase can be a little misleading in the NIV, and this worship is called spiritual in the ESV, but it literally means logical. So, let me go over here. This is quicker. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So, when we see God's mercy, when we understand it, the only logical response is what? To offer our bodies as living sacrifices. That's what we're to do. In other words, once you understand God's mercy, anything less than complete and total sacrifice to God simply does not make sense. In fact, I would add that if mercy does not regularly blow out the dust of indifference to sin and apathy to worship in your soul, then, as mentioned before, you don't understand God's mercy. You don't understand the gospel. So our motivation to offer all of ourselves all the time from Christ comes from a grasp of his mercy. It's the only logical response to offer him everything. So the enemy often pounds us with the lie, is living this life for Christ really worth it? You ever have doubts like that or is it just me? It is the only logical response. The best way to attack doubt 
is to reflect on the gospel. And the enemy would love to have us just work harder. And I, I have to admit, I've fallen into this, I would say, the last year. Where, man, I need to get back to my verse memory. So I memorize, you know, literally 25 chapters of the Bible, if not more. Whole books. And it's great. It's wonderful. But I can do that and not be meditating on the gospel. I need to be sharing the gospel more. I can do that, but not be meditating on the gospel. Outward behaviors must come out of a transformed life. But we must make sure that we're leaning into the Holy Spirit to pour the love of Christ out into our hearts. Or it's just our own efforts. So now we get to the Christ follower's fruit. Our last point here. So the fruit that comes out of a life absorbed and obsessed and transformed by the mercy of Jesus will come with some serious change. It says in verse 2, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the fruit is negative and positive. The life transformed by Christ will negatively not conform to the pattern of this world, and positively it will be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So it's two. Uh, the renewal of our minds is definitely intellectual. Okay, it is. Uh, uh, Colossians 3.16, Let the word of God dwell in you richly. So we're to pour over scripture, we're to memorize it, we're to study it, and we're also to not conform to the pattern of this world. That means we avoid media that's sinful. We avoid over-entertainment. We avoid materialism and all those things that conform us to the pattern of this world. But it also means to be transformed, the lens that we view life through is changed. Our emotions, our motivation the way we think about things, the way we discern good from evil, all of those things is changed, is transformed. In short, our thinking should become more right or righteous, intellectually understanding the difference between good and evil, wisdom and foolishness, and all the rest. And our imagination should be captured by the mercy of Christ. We should be envisioning the redeemed people of God and the redeemed creation that Christ will bring when he comes back. We went through that Day of the Lord series. That should be consuming our imaginations. And it should be changing the way we live here and now. Just like an athlete envisions a future with a championship ring or an actress, a future Oscar in hand, we're to deny ourselves and follow him with an all-consuming future vision of the last days when Jesus restores all things. Another result of this total life offering is that according to verse 2 of Romans 12, we'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Good here is not an adjective. It's a noun. Meaning God's good will is not what's being said here. It is God's will is good, but rather God's will is what is good for every believer. So this, this isn't describing the characteristics of God's will that it's good, pleasing, and perfect, although it is, it's saying that, that God's will will be good, pleasing, and perfect to us. It's what we need, and it's not speaking of God's unique will for each and every person, like you know where you should go to college or something like that. It's talking about God's general will for every believer, that when we're transformed, when we're intellectually transformed, when the lens we view life through is transformed, then we're able to enjoy and see God's will. 
So a Christian transformed in her mind to be more like Christ will come to approve and desire God's will, not her own will for her life. She discovers that God's will is what's good for her and that it's what pleases God to walk that out. So these three, the Christ followers, calling, motivation, and fruit make us bulletproof to apathy and indifference towards God. In short, we need to come back to the joy of our salvation. That's the application here. We must view life through the lens of his mercies. And many believers love the part tonight about don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, there, and this is great. There's admonition to watch. Be careful about what you watch and what you listen to. Be careful what you spend your money on and, and all of these behaviors. But I think often that message is given without Paul's main intent. For the whole section, Romans 12 through the end of the letter, it's in view of God's mercy. We cannot move on. I want to say this again to verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We can't move on to that if we don't get chapter 1 all the way through chapter 12, verse 1, in view of God's mercy. We want to be Romans 12.1 Christians in order to be Romans 12.2 Christians. But we can't simply reflect generally on his mercies. Again, it's, more, you, you don't just, it's great to start with thanking him for the cross. But if you ever ask the Lord to stir your imagination as you remember your testimony. Have you ever done that? You know, I'm a little dry right now. I'm pursuing the Lord. I'm praying. I'm in the word. I'm doing all this stuff. But I'm a little dry. You know what helps me? to get out my journal. I'm going to be doing this tomorrow. I'm going to be sitting down with someone on, on my day off, which is Monday, to talk to them about this very thing, my testimony. But not just, you know, the generic thing I share, the elevator talk with someone that I've got 30 seconds to share with, the long one, the one that takes an hour, where I describe the people that God used to get my attention, where I describe in detail the emotional response that I had to realizing that I was a sinner and the weight of my sin how is a you know, tough 16-year-old athlete who thought he all had it together that I wept for a week straight when I realized just how much Jesus loved me? That I had hurt him so deeply with my sin. And I, I, I started to see all the ways, both small and large, that he had pursued me, the people he had put in my life. And then how those individuals came to know Christ. What were the influences on their life? Thinking about how God has used me over the years. Allowing myself to spend considerable time on those passages that have been so meaningful to me throughout my life. Life verses. And, and, and letting God speak to me about his mercy. To not brush past that. It's not an elementary teaching. Start by simply praying, Lord, help me to see more of your mercy. Because if we lack interest in living a holy life, it comes from a failure to contemplate God's mercy to us. Did you know that? If we're not interested in becoming a living sacrifice for him to, to be holy, if that's not an interest for us, it is because of a failure to contemplate his mercies.
Are we doing that? I know I'm not doing that enough. I'm not doing that enough. I tend to focus on the things that I need to do in order to become more legit. And you know what? I, I got to tell you, that stops working. Not, it works for many of you young people. That will stop working for you. Can I get an amen from some of you who've been following the Lord for a while? Yeah, it stops working because, A, you don't have the energy. You get older. You get uglier. Your mind gets weaker, okay? Case in point. Uh, you have more responsibility. You've got children. You've got people that are counting on you. You've got all this stuff in your life. And the Lord doesn't let you get by with relying on anything but him. After what, you know, when you're young, okay, Chris, you know, I'll let you go ahead and spin these wheels and, and you see God working and moving through you even though you're relying on yourself and not him when you're not meditating and reflecting regularly on his mercy and grace when you're not preaching the gospel to yourself. And then trials come. And they take the wind out of your sails. And unless that prayer life connects you to the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and his counsel and his comfort, he will eventually pull the rug out from underneath your feet and disciplines alone will not be enough. The disciplines come out of contemplating on his mercy and his grace. One of the things that I have done, uh, well, let me back up here. Um, this became painfully real to me in 2001. I'm not going to go into all the detail, but I was going through absolute hell. And I printed out all of the verses on the love of Christ, and they literally reparented me. And I went over them and memorized them every day, just went over them and over, said them out loud over and over and over and over and over and over. You see, because God's word, it penetrates it says in Hebrews, to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, that it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. This book that we read is living and active. It changes us. God can refather you. He can change you. You can experience the love of Christ through the indwelling Holy Spirit when you make much of his word and cling to it. And I would encourage you to do that. I'm going to go ahead and invite the worship team up. Remember your testimony, but be specific. And you're going to, you know when prayer time, when you hear crickets in prayer times the most? When you say, hey guys, we're just going to worship the Lord for a while. We're not going to get into request. That should be, man, that should be pouring off our lips. Where you have to interrupt one another. Get, Lord, thank you for this. Thank you for this. Thank you for my salvation. Getting into the details of his salvation. Getting into the details of how he chose the church and uses the church as a redemptive tool. Uh, praising the Lord for the last days when he'll come back for his people. It should be pouring out of our mouths. And we have to let the Holy Spirit educate us, don't we, in changing our imagination so that we think much on his mercy. And I'm going to give you the chance to do that now. So grab your notebook or your phone, and I want you to write down specifically about his mercy to you. So you can start generally with your salvation and then dig into how he specifically got your attention, how he showed you your sin, how he demonstrated his love to you specifically. Go ahead and write that down right now. And then also write which passages from the Bible, which verses he used, or something along those lines as the Lord leads and then I also want you to write down, it can just be a sentence even, how are you going to reflect and meditate on his mercies this week? 